0: The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse.
1: To each and every sinner, the gospel is offered freely, without money and without price. The gospel cuts the ground from beneath any sinner who would pretend to have any righteousness and declares that human righteousness cannot be mingled with that which God provides alone. Salvation is declared to be ours by the righteousness of another, even by the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwelling bodily amongst us in order to go to the cross and make reconciliation for sin by the sacrifice of himself.
0: The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, The Touchstone of Faith. Even in the dark of the night, a pilot can use his flight instruments to fly his airplane. If he should get off course or something is wrong with his approach for a landing, the instruments will warn him and help him make the necessary corrections. If we are not careful, we can get off course in our Christian walk. But the Word of God, properly interpreted by the Spirit of God, can point out our spiritual errors and help us correct our path. The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with his message entitled, The Touchstone of Faith.
1: Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for the simplicity of the gospel for its unequivocal condemnation of human merit, and its frank exaltation of divine grace. Help us to rest in the finished work of the cross. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text is in Romans, the sixth chapter and the first verse. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And before we pass on to further study of the present text, I wish to use it as a demonstration of the nature of Paul's preaching of justification. For when we set forth that the Bible teaches certain things, there are those who sometimes say, but that's just your interpretation. Now, while I have learned to hate all error, I believe that I have come to hate the error that is in that attempt to ward off truth more than any other error I know. Let us face certain great facts. It is impossible to interpret the Bible, to make it mean other than what it teaches. If there are those who cry out that if this were so, there would be no differences in Christendom, we still answer that this is not so, and that on all the great points of the Christian faith, there must be absolute unanimity. God has hedged his truth in such a supernatural, miraculous way that it is impossible to interpret it in a way that is false, without falling into glaring inconsistencies which shriek that there is an error someplace along the line of teaching. I may liken this fact to the method that is now in use in controlling the flight of an aircraft into a landing field. There is a beam which leads straight to the runway upon which the aircraft must land. It's possible for a pilot in a plane to pick up this beam many miles away and to fly on it without seeing the ground. Even in the midst of the foulest weather, the densest fog the pilot will be perfectly safe if he stays on the beam. If the craft deviates to one side of the beam, then there's immediate humming noise on two tones, going from a lower to a higher tone, and then after an interval repeating the lower and higher notes together. If on the contrary the craft is to the other side of the beam, the two tones are reversed, and the pilot hears the intermittent sounds from the higher to the lower tone. It is possible then to adjust the controls of a plane so slightly that the craft stays on the center of the beam. It is similarly possible to stay in the center of biblical truth. First of all, there is the truth about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Jehovah God, the second person of the Godhead. There can be no deviation from that revelation. Now, nonetheless important is the great truth about the work of Christ in dying for us on the cross. I propose to show in our present study that our text constitutes a signal like that in the aircraft, a warning signal which will announce if any man has departed from the simplicity of the doctrine of Christ's propitiation for the sins of mankind and salvation through his blood alone, apart from any works of the flesh. Our text shows what men were saying in that day. Why, they cried out to Paul, your doctrine is that of an immoral tendency. You're saying that it's possible for a man to believe and then to do as he please. Now, how would it have been possible for any man, even a very stupid man, to have suggested to Paul that he could continue in sin in order that grace might abound if Paul had been preaching any one of a dozen heresies which have been current throughout history and which are current today? Let us look at certain ideas which are presented by some as though they were Christianity and see if it would be possible to use our text against them. Let's check these ideas by the signal of our text. Take, first of all, the whole sacramental idea of Christianity. Would it be possible for anyone, anyone, even a very stupid person, to say that a sacramental system taught that it would be possible to continue in sin that grace might abound? The sacramental idea is the following, that Christ, in dying on the cross, provided a reserve of grace which is put in the hands of the church to be administered by the clergy or someone else, and that these have charge of doling out the grace to individuals, providing that they perform certain acts and ceremonies. First, their parents must bring them to be baptized, and the baptism in some way takes away their original sin. Then at some later date, the individual is confirmed on his own confession of faith, confirmed in the vows that were taken for him when he was yet unconscious. Grace has to be supplemented by penitence and sorrow for sin. Otherwise, grace cannot be effective. The individual can never have the full assurance of salvation because he might get himself out of grace by one or more acts, and some of which might be mortal sins. It would be possible to enlarge on this idea and go into many more of the details of such a theology, but I ask where, when, and how would it be possible to make the objection of our text to such a system of theology? If the sacramental idea of salvation and the individual's participation in the salvation had been the idea preached by Paul, nobody, yes, nobody, could have said, well, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The question would have been nonsense. Thus, our text sets up a strong signal to tell those who would pilot souls in such a direction that they are off the beam and they risk crashing their craft into the side of some mountain that lies off the charted course. Augustine knew and understood this, and he preached salvation by grace alone. Much later, Thomas Aquinas mingled justification and regeneration in such a way as to dilute justification and make it mean something far different from that which has been expressed by the apostle in the earlier chapters of Romans. But our text sets up the warning signal that shows how far Aquinas was off the beam. His theology could never have brought forth the accusation that it was an invitation to abide in sin in order that grace might much more abound. In England, Bishop Mole, the famed Anglican bishop of Durham, has called attention to this departure in a tightly packed paragraph which can be unraveled slightly and set in our argument. These recorded objections to Paul's simple preaching of the gospel tell us, incidentally, he writes, how explicit and unreserved his delivery of the message had been, and how justification by faith, by faith only, meant what was said when it was said by him. Christian thinkers of more schools than one, and at many periods, have hesitated not a little over that point. The medieval theologian mingled his thoughts of justification with those of regeneration, and taught our acceptance accordingly on lines impossible to lay true along the lines set out by St. Paul. In later days, the meaning of faith has been sometimes beclouded till it has seemed through the haze to be only an indistinct summary word for Christian consistency, for exemplary conduct, or for good works. Now supposing either of these lines of teaching or anything like them to be the message of St. Paul, his gospel as he preached it, one result may be reasonably inferred that we should not have had Romans six one worded as it is. Whatever objections were encountered by a gospel of acceptance expounded on such lines, and no doubt it would have encountered many if it called sinful men to holiness, it would not have encountered this objection that it seemed to allow men to be unholy. If Paul had preached even in the slightest degree that a man could trust even the greatest of his works, as a contributory factor in salvation, he would never have been accused of preaching a gospel that led to sinfulness. If Paul had preached human obedience as a factor in salvation, he never would have been accused of preaching a gospel that led to sinfulness. Whether the objector, the inquirer, was dull or whether he was subtle, it could not have occurred to him to say, you're preaching a gospel of license. I may, if you're right, live as I please, only drawing a little deeper on the fund of gratuitous acceptance as I go on. And Mole adds, but just this was the animus, the real meaning, and such were very nearly the words of those who either hated St. Paul's message as unorthodox, or who wanted an excuse for the sin they loved, and found it in quotations from his writings." It follows then that Paul must have meant by faith what faith ought to mean, simple trust. And he must have meant by justification without works what those words ought to mean, acceptance irrespective of our recommendatory conduct. Now, such a gospel was no doubt liable to be mistaken and misrepresented and in just the way that we are now observing. But it was also and is so still the only gospel which is the power of God unto salvation, to the fully awakened conscience, to the soul that sees itself and asks for God instead. The straight beam of the gospel in the light of this objection raised against it can be only one thing. Paul could not have preached anything other than that which we have set forth in our discussion on Romans up to this point. In other words, it is true that the gospel when set forth as Paul stated it, has an aspect which to a superficial observer seems to encourage sin in the life of the believer. That it does not encourage sin, we've seen in our last study, and we'll see it still further in studies which are to come. That gospel, the true gospel, full and free, greatly magnifies the grace of God in the salvation of the lost sinner. That gospel proclaims that grace in all its fullness And in all its freeness is the method whereby God saves men. This gospel offers salvation by faith alone and totally irrespective of the person, the state, or the acts of the believer, declaring to him that worketh not, but believeth in him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And finally, this gospel does not offer salvation to those who have passed some standards of human goodness, but freely declares that all manner of sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, and that the lowest of mankind may come as freely as the highest. Indeed, we're told that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. Nothing could set forth more clearly the nature of the gospel which Paul declared, and which we declare, and by which we have been saved. Against such a gospel its enemies may level the charge of licentiousness because they are men of the carnal mind which is enmity against God and which is not subject to the law of God nor which can be. And while we repudiate their charge as being baseless and as proceeding from their sinful hearts and as being unfounded in any way whatsoever in the light of the total teaching of the word about the gospel, yet we nevertheless pick up their charge and use it as a curb against those who would degrade the gospel and make it something less than it is. Any perversion of the gospel is always made in the interest of saving man's face. As long as he can think that he has some part, even any little part, in the work of his salvation, he is not left in the abyss of utter spiritual bankruptcy. He will go to any lengths to drag in something of human merit, something of human religion as a down payment or a part payment on his salvation. But to be left in utter worthlessness, to have all his efforts discarded, to have all his human aspirations brushed aside, to be told that the prime requisite to his salvation is an admission that he deserves to feel the full wrath of God, is so galling to the lost soul that there are some men who will go all the way to hell to avoid admitting it until that moment when they shall be forced to admit it as they feel the angel force upon their physical being, which shall cause their knee to bow and their tongue to confess that God's way was the only way of salvation. Then it will be too late. Thus... We have seen that the very existence of our text and the similar text later in this chapter, which presents the carnal thought that it might be possible to continue in sin because we have liberty from the judicial aspects of the law. The existence of these texts, I say, demonstrates that all that we have said in our setting forth of the truth throughout these scores of studies in the early chapters of Romans is the one possible way of understanding the teaching of the Holy Spirit through the great apostle. We have not presented an interpretation. We have held up the mirror of truth and have given a reflection. And Paul's phraseology, as he now turns from justification to sanctification, proves the folly of any so-called interpretation that falls short of the full grace of God for needy sinners. Now, in spite of this fact, I have heard some people admit that we are right, but who suggest that perhaps it's dangerous to preach all of the truth since it might be an occasion for stumbling for some. But God's way is the way of truth. We may not turn away from the proclamation of truth because objections are brought against it. Shall we stop preaching Christ because he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to many? No. We must comprehend that the purpose of God is to have all men confronted with the truth. We must never be deterred from presenting the whole truth, even if it does cause some man to cavil and others to mock. Shall foolish arguments against truth impede the going forth of the truth? God forbid. In the chemistry laboratories, there is the common use of litmus paper, which will illustrate my point. Formerly, two kinds of paper were used, but now the laboratories have a single kind of paper, a gray-blue in color, which, when dipped into any liquid, will change color to red or dark blue, depending on the nature of the liquid. If the paper is dipped into vinegar, lemon juice, orange juice, or a solution of boric acid, for example, the paper will change from its normal gray, blue, to red. This is because these substances are all acids. On the other hand, if another piece of litmus paper or the other end of the same piece is dipped into ammonia water or into a solution of borax or washing soda, the color will change to deep blue, for these substances are alkaline. Now the truth of God is a litmus paper which tests the whole being of a man. That is why we are to proclaim the truth in every place and to all men without thought of the effect that it shall produce in the hearer. The work of the Christian is to evangelize. It is not my business to convert men. It is my business to proclaim truth. I cannot convert a man, and if I attempted to do so, my converts would be no stronger than my frail human logic and my weak gifts. But if I fling forth the truth and leave it entirely to God, that truth suddenly begins to do a remarkable work. Some men are entirely transformed by it, and some men become fiercely antagonistic to it. What is wrong with the truth? Surely there's nothing wrong with the truth, but it is a revealer of the hearts of men. This is what Paul meant when he wrote to the Corinthians. Now thanks be to God which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. Now, some may wonder how the Christian can be a fragrance to God because of our contacts with men who are lost. But the answer comes in the next verse. To the one we are the savor of death unto death and to the other we are the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? Thus, it can be seen that the Christian, the true born again believer, has been impregnated with the truth of God about free grace, overflowing and abounding, and as he lives grace and preaches grace among men, some will refuse it and others will receive it and be transformed by it. There are two verses in other epistles which become remarkable when they are placed side by side. They describe what happens to the gospel in a heart that is hard against the truth, and then what is the effect of the gospel in a heart that is open and yielded to the truth. The first of these texts is in the epistle to the Hebrews. We read in Hebrews 4, 2, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. We see such hearts in the Lord's parable of the seed that was sown on various types of ground. Where the ground was hard, the devil's birds snatched away the truth. Where the ground was shallow, the sun killed the plant because there was no real root. Where the ground was thorny, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choked the plant so that it could not grow. The gospel was preached in all these cases, but it did not profit those who heard it as it was not mixed with faith to receive and assimilate it. What a contrast in the second of these verses, written to the Thessalonians. Paul tells them that he had exhorted and comforted and charged every one of them as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you into his kingdom and glory. He then says, for this cause also thank we God without ceasing because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. And thus we see the truth arriving in a heart which receives it avidly, as good ground receives good seed, and the truth effectually worked within their hearts as it went in, took root, sprang up, and produced the plant and the good seed a hundredfold. So in summary, we see that our text, with its reflection of the unrighteous charges brought against the true gospel, is a signal which shows the rigid reality of the framework of the Holy Spirit's teaching. No such charge as our text makes could be leveled at any heretical form of the gospel. But the clear, unadorned, unadulterated gospel of man's complete ruin in sin and God's perfect remedy in Christ strikes home to the hearts that will receive it with faith, believing that it is indeed the truth of God, grace superabounding to the chief of sinners without respect to the length of your rebellion or the depth of your iniquity. This is the truth that brings life. But if the full gospel comes to a heart that will not receive it, it will never be comprehended. Trifling arguments will be brought forth against it, or blasphemous lies will be told about it. The gospel will continue in the world, sending to outer darkness those who refuse it, and taking to the throne of heaven those who will receive it. This it can do, because it is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth. And we pray thee, our God and Father, that thou wilt keep us on the clear beam of truth. That we may not be afraid of thy truth, knowing that it will be able to defend itself. So blessed as it goes forth, that every man may see that if he's willing to turn away utterly from anything that is in himself, and come to the free grace that thou hast manifested at the cross, that thou wilt receive him, wilt give him life eternal, give restlessness to any who have not been born again, But unto all thy redeemed own, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide. We ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
0: For centuries, people have misunderstood and opposed the biblical teaching of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We must defend this glorious gospel against all forms of error. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse, entitled, The Touchstone of Faith. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, The Touchstone of Faith, or simply ask for message number R6-2. We'd also like to make available to you our free booklet entitled, Who's Choosing Whom? Do you view God as patiently waiting in heaven, hoping that people will turn to Him? If so, this free booklet will open your eyes to an amazing biblical truth. Long before you chose to follow the Lord, He chose you for salvation and worked in your life to bring you to Himself. Far from creating confusion or controversy, the doctrine of election and God's sovereign grace should fill us with confidence and adoration for our Lord, who saves to the uttermost. Ask for your free copy of Who's Choosing Whom When You Call or Write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call us toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at alliancenet.org.